Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Analog Eternity. Our host is Dr. Adam Lackey, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The NY Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of NuclearCast. Today we have with us a couple of great guests. Now, we're going to talk to Colonel Dan Jensen, who is the deputy commander of the 5th Bomb Wing at Minot, North Dakota. And we're going to talk to his partner in crime, Colonel George Chapman, who is the deputy commander of the 91st Missile Wing, also at Minot, North Dakota, because Minot Air Force Base is is a unique base within the Air Force because it has both a bomb wing and a missile wing. No other base in Air Force Global Strike Command has that. And so we thought we'd have them on together so that they could tell us about Minot and the very unique mission and experience that it is to be stationed at Minot Air Force Base. So, gentlemen, welcome to NucleCast. Thanks, Adam. It's great to be here with you. appreciate you uh, having us on the show today. Yep. Thanks, Adam. So Minot is this very unique base and, you know, for, as the old saying goes, you know, why not Minot? And, you know, a lot of people who have not served uh, in the nuclear world, in the Air Force nuclear world, and have never spent time at Minot, they know North Dakota and the cold and the windswept plains. But for folks who have been stationed at Minot, it's, you know, it's not only does it have a unique mission, but it actually has a pretty strong culture such that when airmen leave, they've had, you know, they've enjoyed their time at Minot. So before we talk about what it's like to be in North Dakota and to try to fly B-52s in, you know, whether that's 20 degrees below zero and, you know, when the runway's iced over and when you've got to drive three hours out to your LCC on icy roads uh, in the dead of winter. Tell us a little bit about this dual mission that takes place at Minot. And and then kind of what is that like to have both missiles and bombers at Minot? I'll let you guys choose who goes first. Well, I'll go ahead and start off. Um, So Minot with the two wings that are here, is a partnership between the two wings. Basically, one of the wings, the 5th Bomb Wing, takes care of a lot of the in- infrastructure and the support that's provided to the missile wing. The missile wing is a great partner, and they also work with us to make sure that the resources that we have available can be shared between both the flying operations as well as uh, their missile mission that they take care of. Yeah, It's important to understand that uh, as you mentioned already, Adam, the uniqueness of Minot is one of the best things about Minot uh, when it comes to that dual mission, as well as just the people that come up here to represent our nation in this in these two legs of the triad. Yep. So I'm gonna I'll pile in and and add to Dan's comments. So first off, Minot Minot has been awesome for Team Chapman so far. We moved here in June of this past summer, so we're 
we're new arrivals here. It's our first time being stationed here, but showing up, we quickly became impressed upon by how closely knit the two organizations are in everything that we do. So nothing happens on the 91st missile wing side or on the fifth bomb wing side that doesn't influence impact uh, the other's mission. And so when you reached out to me, Adam, uh, and said, Hey, how, how do you feel about doing this nucleocast podcast uh, or event? For me, this was not something that I wanted to try and do by myself because it's very much about Team Minot. It's very much about how we work together and how we get the mission done. There is a, I, I try and perpetuate this idea of the Venn warrior, right? <laughs> the, we're, we're familiar with Venn diagrams. And here we have two big missions that are happening at Minot with the 91st Missile Wing and the 5th Bomb Wing. And operations, everything that you need to get those two jobs done is is you know, distinct in its own regard, but there is a group of warriors in the middle that support two nuclear missions. So you start looking at all the folks in the mission support group, the folks that are working in the the med group, they're supporting all of us. They're supporting the fifth, the 91st, and our families and the infrastructure and everything that we do. And so again, nothing can happen uh, that affects one unit without affecting the other. So we're grateful for the Venn warriors. They, They have the daunting task of serving two masters, even though organizationally they belong to the fifth bomb wing. And if so you don't let, mind, I'll, I'll go ahead, go ahead. If you don't mind just a, a pile on there for you, Adam, is that, that, that partnership we have, um, is, there's a lot of, uh, I'll use the term cuss and discuss to use a little bit of slang when it comes down to how do we support one another? Uh, it's that healthy debate, the healthy tension that exists there to make sure that both missions are successful. When I say both missions, it's really one mission, our strategic deterrence for our country. Yeah, you, you bring up an interesting question because, you know, a, a bomber wing operates very differently than a missile wing. You know, it's sort of different cultures, different operating schedules. It's just, I mean, it's just two different missions, you know, strategic deterrence, yes, but operationally, it's very different. And, you know, probably many of our, most of our Nuclecast audience, you know, they're somewhere within the nuclear enterprise. They're active duty folks. They're, you know, we've got folks out at the labs. We've got folks in, you know, the contracting world, DOE. And so for those folks who are listening, who might not have sort of ever been stationed at Minot, maybe they were at Malmstrom where we know it was the, the, the missile mission and that's it. Or maybe, you know, they were at Barksdale and so it was all bombers. Help them understand what some of these differences might be and then how you work through those differences. Yeah, so I'll talk briefly just about the mission portion of it, first of all. Um, and the bomb wing mission, we have specific uh, missions or, or tasks that are given to us from our leadership to influence uh, politically across the globe, other nations and their decision-making, uh, part of our, our deterrence, part of our ability to influence. Those missions start off uh, based out of Minot in some cases and in other cases at a different place. A uh, common, common term that is used is our bomber task force missions that we fly, uh, those being where we would locate in a, in a different place 
and operate out of there for a period of time, maybe 30 days, 45 days, just depends upon what the mission is. Uh, those, those are a heavy lift resource-wise for us to, to transport enough people and, and equipment to take care of the mission set that's asked by the combatant commanders that are out there. We fly a CONUS to CONUS type mission up to that 30, 32 hour type time frame to accomplish what taskings that were given from headquarters. You contrast that with the missile wing mission, which they're here day in and day out, whether it's rain, sun, shine, wind, which we get lots of, uh, they're here doing their portion of that. And so although we may step out uh, away from here and, and, and uh, operate in different locations, we share the same base, we share the same mission support group, we share the same medical group, and those that mission support group and medical group feed and care for both. Now, it is a challenging piece to sustain a wing in any of the wings that are, that are out doing the mission that they've been given. Here, we have the two wings that are supported. And so there's constant conversation between George and I just on, are you getting what you need? And he asked me those questions too. You know, did we ask too much in this area, not enough that area? How's your mission going? Those types of conversations engender cooperation and engender the appropriate communication to get done what needs to be done. Yes, George? Yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and chip in real quick, Adam. So in terms of getting the mission done, like you said, a lot of the folks who are probably listening in are familiar with broader nuke enterprise, maybe familiar with how we conduct operations uh, on the missile wing side of the house, just to rebaseline, you know, of, of the three missile wings, my not, uh, we have probably the most efficient missile complex out of the three wings. So it's roughly eight and a half thousand square miles. So when we, that's a, that's another difference or challenge associated with mission perspective is, you know, when, when you have to do maintenance on an aircraft or, or your actual combat capability, your platform, uh, it's, you know, up on the flight line for our maintainers, they have to go travel out across a missile complex, roughly the size of New Jersey, as they head out to any of our launch facilities where the missiles are, or out to the missile alert facilities or the launch control centers where they're controlled from. So in total, there's 165 different locations out in that eight and a half thousand square mile complex that requires support. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, just like any mission, it doesn't happen without the people. And so the people are what gets stressed as they try and go out and keep up with the, the weapon system, with the missiles, with the infrastructure. And then when you get into the flood and mud season, you know, in winter and all those things, that becomes a whole different kind of dynamic. And in a lot of ways, it becomes an all hands on deck to make sure that the, the nuclear alert force is able to keep on doing what it needs to do while balancing that together with how do we make sure that the flight line is open and running and able to meet their combatant commander requirements. So there are things that we have to work together to coordinate. And from day to day, the priority may change based on whatever the mission requirements that are being asked of our individual units are, because we're going to the same pot of support folks to help get things done. And we can't do it without them. A, a case in point is our snow season is coming up and we go through uh, what we call a snow drill to ensure that the communication between both wings and our civil engineers is, is accurate, correct, that the prioritization is laid out as at a, from a planning perspective. Of course, 
mission demands may require that those priorities change. And so there's conversation that starts very early in the morning. And as we need to do the audible to change priorities, to ensure that the missile mission happens versus the bomber mission, uh, we do that. Um, and those, those are constant discussions. And, and then real quick, if we could, just again, for people who have never been to Minot, Minot Air Force Base is unique in and of itself as well, just due to its location. So we're located roughly 20 miles north of the city of Minot and not too far from the border of Canada. We're pretty far north. And so there is a unique sense of community that happens, I think, to the folks who are stationed here that is somewhere between a, um, you know, being deployed in a deployed environment for the operators but then for families, almost like being in a, a foreign country in the sense that you have your small community, your small group of folks that you see at work, you see them at the commissary, you see at the gym, you see them when you walk around the neighborhoods. And so there's definitely a level of um, cohesion that is not necessarily what you would find in a different area. If you're in the D.C. metropolitan area and everybody goes to their four corners at the end of the day, it's not the case here in Minot, and we're, we're all experiencing it together. And uh, and so there's a lot of camaraderie that comes with that as well. Like uh, that we're, we're in this together. Yeah, and, and I'll add to that, that if you try to go to the nearest metropolitan area, you're talking at least a two-hour drive to get to Bismarck, roughly four <laughs> hours to go to Fargo, you know, more hours to continue on to Minneapolis around that eight-hour mark. And what you'll see in between is a lot of rolling prairies. Farms, yeah. Farms, um, and Crops. just that's just remind everybody, yeah. Bismarck and Fargo, that's like 50,000 people each. So yeah. those are the metropolitans. So, <laughs> those are the metropolitans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned, because I, you know, as I, as a young sailor, remember the days when, you know, the base club was the happen in place and the auto shop was open and, you know, the Navy Exchange, you know, you could actually shop there and they had, you know, good stuff. And, and it, you know, with, as we've sort of evolved, those things are not necessarily the center of life, like they are somewhat still like at Ramstein, for example. But Minot is a place in the United States where you know, you, you probably still have a decent club. You probably still have a good bowling alley. You know, you probably still have those kinds of things that we used to have, you know, many moons ago. But as people have, you know, started living out in town instead of on base and things of that nature elsewhere, they've kind of, you know, declined. And so it seems, you know, and it might not, I guess one of the big questions I've got is are there times when, you know, let's say, you know, the bomb wing is, is, you know, doing a bomber task force and they're, you know, I don't know, at Guam and, you know, it's the winter and the guys in the 91st are saying, man, I wish I were, a, you know, I wish I were, a, you know, I wish I flew or I wish I were a, you know, a B-52, you know, maintenance officer or something to that effect. Because they're wishing, and are there times when the, you know, when the flyers are out on the flight line saying, man, uh, I wish I were in a nice warm LCC right now. Do you see that any kind of rival, rivalry or jealousy between 
the two wings or is it, you know, is it always, you know, just kosher all the time or how does that work? So I'm I'm going to, I'm going to hop in real quick on this one. I think that getting a response for, from either Dan or I on this one maybe isn't representative of what the, <laughs> the majority demographic on this base would respond uh, to your question. But, but because I remember, I remember when I was assigned to Malmstrom and I had a crew partner who he was ahead of me and he left Malmstrom early and he got a job down in Florida and everybody was so jealous that he was heading to Florida and, and we were just in awe that a missileer could end up with an assignment down there. And I remember hearing back from him not long after he got down there and the, the same type of complaining and griping that he had when he was at Malmstrom carried forward with him to Florida. He's like, you wouldn't believe how hot and humid it is. You know, the sun's <laughs> always out. There's no seasonal variability. You know, so I think I think perspective would show every individual that, you know, your attitude about a place starts from within the outside is just context, you know? And so you can either allow that to take over what's going on on the inside, or you can control your own narrative. Cause I I've been to, Dan's been to more places than I have been, but you know, I've been to station in Southern Germany at Garmisch where the Edelweiss lodge and resort are. And there are people who weren't happy there. I don't know how I've been assigned to CENTCOM and fl flown to airfields all over the place. And, when you have people who are attached to that installation and can't leave, you know, that while it sounds exotic and, and, and neat, you know, I, I remember seeing the, the oil stains on the, on the tarmac from B-52s at al -Udid, you know, and, and those folks, they have their own individual experience. But I, I would say that uh, for those of us who have been around a little bit longer, uh, it's probably more about making the most of your experience that you're having right now because that's where you're at and your happiness and your fulfillment, enjoying everything. You control a large part of that narrative coming here for the first time. For me, I was really excited because I saw Mina as an adventure. There are all these things. It has, it has a reputation that precedes it. And I wanted to experience it for myself. I want to see the curling. I want to see the ice fishing. I want to see, you know, the, the, the Northern lights, if that is an opportunity, I want to see the, very short days in the winter time frame. And for everything that you hear about the winters in Minot, North Dakota, you don't hear nearly as much about the phenomenal summers that they have where it's light outside till 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night and just perfect, beautiful weather. You know, I've heard people talk about Minot having more shoreline than the state of California. That may be cheating a little bit, but, uh, you know, they've got a lot of lakes. Uh, they say that, uh, what, Minnesota's a land of 10,000 lakes, yeah. and and people say Minot probably has more. They just haven't bothered to count them all uh, just because of how much snow comes and the soil consistency, and you get you have a lot of lakes nearby. So there's a lot of good things to, to be said for Minot. Sorry, that was a lot. Go ahead, Dan. No, I, I agree that um, there's a lot of great things here. And to your point, Adam, about, uh, I'll call it friendly competition and rivalry that goes on. My observation is, is that in general, the people have a choice. They can, they can choose to love the mission that they've got, or they can complain has been described. Uh, the ones that I've associated with the most, they're very happy to be doing what they're doing. Um, there are people that uh, are always looking for opportunities to serve in other ways, and I think that's normal. It's in the nature of, of us as human beings to try to advance and move forward and do, do better, different. One of the things that keeps bringing people back to Minot who've been here, however, 
is the camaraderie. It's that culture that exists in the individual organizations clear down to the flight level. And that culture changes over time, uh, depending upon the personalities that are there and the leadership that is there. But in general, those that have been at Minot and experienced it have good things to say about that culture and the unity that's here. And, and I just haven't experienced that to the level in this, in this assignment. And I've been here three times now, the third time, as, in, as, other experience, as other assignments. So I think it's there. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. So let me ask you then, and then I I, I want to quickly turn to uh, you know more serious topics. But do you have sort of a robust intramural softball season where you know the wings can compete against each other, and maybe you know maybe in the winter it's basketball because uh, you you know you are twenty miles from town. So I'm, I mean that was one of the things I always enjoyed most was was you know ships because you know I'm I'm a sailor so. It was ship softball teams that played one another. So I would assume that's one of the things y'all do as well. Yeah, we have a very, very strong force support squadron program, uh, which are all of those extra activities that you're talking about. There's been since probably 2003 is the first time was he- I was here, uh, money that's been placed into the infrastructure to ensure there's enough activities for the airmen that come up here and their families to keep them busy and safe during the winter time as well as in the summer, and to build that esprit de corps. Uh, there are enough activities that you can't participate in all of them. Uh, our mission pace that we run here is a high pace. There's always something that's going on, and so what you find is you may have a mixture, a mixed team of uh, a certain organization, and they're doing p- picking up bodies as they can to play, simply because other guys are out doing the mission at the time the games take place. Um, but I think that's true to Minot. It's true to the culture that's here. It has always been that way. Uh, we've been fortunate to have uh, increased resources over time as, as um, the importance of this base, the importance of the mission is known at the highest levels in our nation. And so that has been a great benefit to, the, to supporting the families and the airmen themselves. Yeah. And, and I really feel like maybe my boss CC'd you him on his email yesterday when he said bowling <laughs> season has started. So bowling season is about to start up here. Uh, And then, you know, there are all sorts of great activities that uh, can be carried forward throughout all the seasons. Uh, Dan and I went and toured a bunch of the facilities here together. They have indoor archery ranges here on base, uh, you know, video game style, as well as with hay bales and things like that. So there, there are a lot of activities and, and some of them are seasonal and rightfully so, you know, we don't need to stay indoors for all things all the time in the summertime when the summer is beautiful and we've got lots of resources that can go towards that as well. Uh, We also have other indoor areas on base that support our airmen, uh, you know, for group theater style video gaming and and coming together. That's another big concern is during the wintertime, how do we help ensure that our airmen have opportunities to get out of their dorm rooms and actually connect with uh, other people. So there's a lot, like like Colonel Jensen said, a lot of programs going on, and and they're most welcome. And I, I just one thing I'd add, Adam, to that too is that 
we're in a fiscally constrained environment, as we all know, um, with the challenges that exist uh, throughout the world and the need for um, resources to be utilized in a variety of ways to help support freedom across the world. And so we try to smartly uh, use the resources we have here, like the bullying season, as was brought up. It's not a year-round piece. It, it opens up during the wintertime as things start to cool off and other areas where that manpower or resource funding was placed for summer events and activities shifts and transitions over to support more of a, a winterized or winter time frame um, uh, experience and events. So let me ask, you know, we really haven't talked about the future of the bomber and missile force. So let me ask a question of each of you. So Dan, you're a B-52 bomb wing. We know Whiteman is expected to have the B-21s when they come online. What is the future of the B-52? And then for you, George, the, you know, you're going to get the Sentinel. Can you talk a little bit about how that transition is going to take place? So the B-52 bomber, if, if, if I could show slides, that would tell the picture, you know, tell the story. A picture is worth a thousand words. But I'll describe it this way. If you were to look at a layer of a cake, the, the bottom layer of that cake, the foundation, is the B-52. And it's planned to extend out to 2050 and to continue to support uh, our nation's freedom and deterrence until that time. The, the need for modernization is real. Uh, our youngest aircraft that are on the on the line out here are already about 60 years old. And so you you take a look at that and think about the the fact that the the, the bombers are going to continue to fly to 2050. Something has to be done to revitalize them and to keep them going. I'm sure that you're aware that the B-52J model is currently being worked on. Uh, that program is designed to replace the engines and some other components that uh, are part of the aircraft's subsystems, like electrics and some other uh, navigation systems, that will help increase the longevity of the B-52. Other things like the radar program that's going to replace the radar will also increase its capability for future challenges that exist out there. So when you think about just the airframe itself, we'll talk about the bare bones of the aircraft. As the aircraft go through the post-doc maintenance where they where they strip, strip down the aircraft, they do their inspections to ensure that the airframe is safe for flight. If there are problems, they're able to remedy those in-house and to take care of them. And so I, I see that with the resources that are promised to come forth, the B-52J, uh, the changes that are being made, that this aircraft will completely be viable and effective out to 2050. Okay, and I'll, yep, yeah, I'll hop in. So... So actually, it's, it's kind of neat. We're doing this chat here in October. October is a big birthday month for the uh, nuclear alert force in the ICBM community. So 31 October 1959. So when the very first ICBM came on operational EWO nuclear alert, and we've been doing it nonstop every single day since then. So that's that's kind of monumental when you think about it in the sheer number of personnel who have done the alert mission, supported it, defended it, maintained it, sustained it. That is something that we've been doing for decades, an incredibly long time. We've been through, if it, it's helpful to think, uh, sometimes when we talk about aircraft, we talk about them in terms of generations, first gen, second gen, third gen, fourth, fifth, sixth. 
Um, we don't often talk about ICBMs in that regard, but when you think about the evolution that has occurred over the years from the early uh, Atlas D, E, and F models to Titan 1, Titan 2, Minuteman 1, 2, 3, Peacekeeper, there has been generations of ICBMs that have happened over the decades with different capabilities, right? We used to stick them up on a launch pad like we do uh, you know, for space launch missions today. Uh, where they were exposed to the elements, and then we put them in uh, coffins where they had to lift up on its side. They were liquid-fueled. Uh, then we put them in silos and pressurized fuel tanks uh, and all sorts of different capabilities to, you know, cold-launch missiles, the Peacekeeper to Minuteman, solid rocket fuel, uh, the ability to put multiple reentry vehicles on top. So there have been technological developments that have happened over the years that kind of put uh, ICBMs into a generational approach. Sentinel is going to be no different in the sense that it's going to be a step forward in combat capability. In terms of the sunsetting of Minuteman 3 and the sunrise of Sentinel, it is going to be a challenge. And when we talk about that transition up here at Minot, uh, we say it with excitement, but then also a little bit of, um, you know, concern about our ability to continue to sustain, maintain the Minuteman fleet right up until the very last one is pulled out of the very last launch out of the last launch facility. And the challenge associated as we look at the progression of the bed down of Sentinel, it's going to start, it's already started at FE Warren, and then it's going to progress to Malmstrom. And then eventually it'll get to us around the 2027 timeframe. And then when it gets here, it's going to be, you know, imagine one site per week. They're going to refurbish and turn it over and try and make it sentinelized, if, if that were a, a word. I think I made it a verb just now. <laughs> but um, so that's going to be a challenge. But a lot of lessons learned will happen between now and then as they do the bed down at F.E. Warren and Malmstrom. So by the time they get here, not only are we laid out more efficiently, we're already laid out in kind of a hub and spoke configuration with our missile complex. Uh, to give you an idea for those who aren't familiar with kind of the lay down of our missile complex here, it's shaped kind of like the, the, the flag of the state of Colorado, right? So Minot Air Force Base is that gold nugget in the center, and then you have a complex that kind of goes around it like the letter C. And so we're set up more efficiently, but we have other challenges that we will face, like our, our construction season, our uh, the the year the months in the year that you can actually break ground, dig up dirt. Uh, as we talk about Sentinel bed down, we're not talking about just the missile inside the tube. We're talking about a, a complete overhaul of all the different elements that are going to support it. Not just in the missile complex, but also here on base. You know, Dan and I we've been sitting in on uh, area defense planning meetings that have already been discussing the bed down for the infrastructure, the facilities the buildings, where that's going to be located here on base, what things do we have to tear down so that we can build new. Uh, it's going to be a, a monumental effort that has already begun here, even though the in-earnest transition of Minuteman to Sentinel in the field and the complex won't come for a number of years yet. And so I, I think that's significant. Um, I think that there are going to be challenges associated with it already. Minuteman has been around since the 1970 and, and here we are, we've, we've done life extension programs on it throughout my entire career, just uh, an incredible amount of life extension programs 
from nose cone to nozzle, the top of the missile to the bottom of it, to help make it a capable weapon system. But as you begin that transition, there's going to be a supply chain uh, concerns that we have to pay close attention to, to ensure that our maintainers can continue to maintain and sustain the Minuteman fleet, because it's, it's a one for one, you know, as we take a missile, excuse me, as we take a missile out of a silo and put another one in, we still have combatant commander requirements that we have to meet throughout the duration. And, and there's, we are the only strategic capability in the world that like this, when you think about ground-based strategic missiles in the Western world, in our allies and, and everybody that uh, we associate with, this is it. This is the only ICBM fleet that we have that does this mission. And so when the combatant command says, we need you to do this and we need you to do it while transitioning, that presents certain logistical challenges that we're going to have to learn from and we're going to have to overcome and, and continue to you know meet those requirements. So I would be remiss if, if we didn't bring Bob out. Now, Bob is my genie that I picked up in the desert. So if I rub my magic lamp, and Bob pops out. I'm going to give you guys three collective wishes. And so you got to, you got to, you know, talk amongst yourselves and, and figure out. So if, if you could have three wishes for Minot, what would be those three wishes? When you say collective, you mean like Team Minot Collective, Dan and I get a total. Well, of you can three. split it how you want. You can split it how you want. Well, I'm going to start. I'll start with a shared one. I think it's shared. Um, one of the things that I would do for Minot is that I would have it designated more of a remote location than it currently is designated. And the reason why I would do that is because there are certain uh, resource advantages and opportunities for all the airmen that are here that would come with that. And by definition, the way that's lined out uh, would, would provide some advantages to us here. Uh, and that's, I think that would be my wish number one is where I would start. Um, since Bob is a, an all-powerful <laughs> wish granter, uh, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think that maybe this is a collective one as well. And it, it builds upon what Dan just shared. If there were some way to change in the hearts and the minds of everybody in the Department of Defense and kind of writ large across our nation to help them understand that Minot is not as scary as maybe it looks like on paper or as all your friends have maybe told you um, <laughs> who have never been here. <laughs> if we could do that, that would be great. I think that uh, not only the the base, but the city of Minot struggles with being able to attract talent to come up here and live and work in this community. And it's a very nice community. I really enjoy it so far. Uh, it may not be everybody's cup of tea, but when we talk about the services that can be provided, the same struggles that we have in getting talent and getting folks to come up here is experienced downtown as well. And so, you know, we find ourselves sometimes in a situation where when we think there's additional capability and capacity downtown, downtown might be dealing with the same struggles that we have. Um, increased demand signals with limited capability to respond to those needs. And, and so that, 
if that that's a that's a bob we'd put bob up for a significant <laughs> amount of wish granting on that one if if there are a way to just help people understand that and i'll i'll give a shout out to uh, our defenders in the 91st missile wing uh, as part of their defender culture one of the things that they do is they they consistently hit the refresh button on their gains rosters to see who who is inbound who's projected to come to minot and before those individuals um get overly influenced by the naysayers out there our leadership teams here they're reaching out as soon as they can to have a conversation with them to let them know you know brass tacks this is truth data this is this is you know the community that you will be joining here's all the great things about minot and all the things to not be as afraid of that maybe you were before you know signing up to come here so big big wish shout out to the defenders i think a lot of folks are looking to see how they can incorporate that and reaching out to folks. That way you're not just saying no to an assignment or a location. Um, you know, at that point, you know that people care about you and they want to receive you with arms wide open and join you, uh, have you join their team. So. so so, I think the last one, if this was in the realm of possibilities, I would just go with world peace. How about that? Hey, all right. Yeah, world peace, <laughs> food for everyone, uh, ample resources across the world. Right. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. So I want to thank you guys for joining us. Of course, we've been talking to the leadership team at Minot Air Force Base, Colonel Dan Jensen and Colonel George Chapman. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us on NucleCast. Thank you, Adam. Thanks. Appreciate it. Well, what a great discussion with Colonels Chapman and Jensen. You know, I, I, you know, during my Air Force career, it was always, ah, you don't want to go to Minot. You know, it had this negative connotation, but I spent, you know, a winter in Minot and it was, the town wasn't so bad. You know, I enjoyed driving into town and, you know, they've got a couple breweries and some nice restaurants. And then, you know, there's more to do on the base than most others. And so it was good to have, you know, the the deputy commanders for the two wings come on and talk about the, you know, their missions and, you know, what they're doing at Minot and how they're trying to make it a great place for airmen to live. And so I was glad to hear them talk about that. And, and hopefully airmen that may listen to this episode, maybe share it with others so that, you know, especially if you're in global strike command and you're contemplating a, because it's, it's actually pretty good place This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center, a 501c3 that seeks to educate key decision makers, stakeholders, and the public to ensure a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent. Our executive producer is Kimberly Chandler-Tim, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Crumpall. Help us grow our followers by sharing it and follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter at Nuclecast.